Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. I wonder how many of you have either changed careers or jobs or changed relationships or moved or had some significant impact in your life in the last two years. Let me see your hands. That's most of the room. And so you've been experiencing on an individual level what we've been going through on a campus level or or congregation level. And the reality is that I feel the best when things in my life are stable and certain. Anybody else? I, I like knowing that where I'm standing is firm and secure. I don't like being in situations that are not, that feel uncertain, insecure, or maybe a little wobbly. See, here, my job is secure, my marriage is thriving, my children are acting right, my finances are in abundance, I like that. But many of us live here, don't we? Marriage isn't what I thought it would be. Kids are acting up again. The job is uncertain and insecure. Finances are tight. And I want to ask the question, is it possible to live victoriously even in the midst of uncertainty? And I believe the answer is yes. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly or to the fullest. Jesus is not saying that when the thief finishes doing what he's trying to do, then you can experience abundant life. In fact, I might translate the verse this way. The thief keeps coming to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you might keep having life and have it to the fullest. In other words, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the struggles, that we would access the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. I'm titling this message today, Winning When Life Feels Wobbly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're going to start out today. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you can go there. We'll also have it on the TV next to me. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, There's some things going on that I want to highlight, and then we're going to look at some various places in the New Testament where Paul shares with us some of the secrets that he learned to winning when life feels wobbly, secrets to living abundantly in the midst of chaos. Now, before we read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and it's just going to be verses 14 to 17, but what I want to do is I want to set this up with some context, because some of you, when you hear the name Paul or the Apostle Paul, you picture a choir of angels singing, ah, right? Like like they used to draw the Apostle Paul with that yellow halo around his head, right? And there's this, this sense that he's something other than, something that we could never attain. But the truth is, Paul experienced incredible hardships, not only externally, but on at least two or three occasions, he says even internally, there's strife, there's turmoil, there's conflict. 
And as Paul writes this second letter to a church called the Church of Corinth, he's, uh, he's doing so in the midst of a lot of chaos in his own life. In fact, just before he writes this letter, he has had a falling out with a man named Barnabas, his first friend and ministry partner. The man who basically welcomed him into the church and walked with him on the first missionary journey. They've had such a sharp disagreement, they can't reconcile to even remain in ministry together. They part ways. And then on the heels of that, Paul starts a second missionary journey with a man named Silas. He's trying to get the gospel to Asia, but on not just one, but on two occasions, the door to Asia closes to the gospel. Finally, Paul finds a way in and he tells us that even though there was an open door for the gospel, his spirit was not at peace because Titus wasn't there, another friend of his. That idea of his spirit was not at peace. Some of you are living there, just restless, just agitated spiritually. And if all of that wasn't enough, Paul is still facing intense persecution. He talks about that later in the letter. And he's even experiencing incredible conflict with the Corinthian church, the very people he's writing to. So Paul's in this situation where everything feels wobbly. His relationships, his ministry, his missionary journey, his career, everything is in turmoil. And in spite of all of that, listen to what Paul writes to the church. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned or sent by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It is wild to me that in the midst of what Paul is going through, he could write these words. Essentially what Paul says is, Corinthians, the thief is up to his normal tricks. He's still trying to steal, still trying to kill, still trying to destroy. But thanks be to God because I have abundant life in the midst of the turmoil. I am winning in Christ even though life feels a little wobbly. I believe what Paul is doing here is he's stating what he knows to be true, not what he feels to be true. Can I say that again? Because for some of you, this is going to make all the difference in the world. Paul is stating what he knows to be true, not what he feels to be true. And he says, what I know is that in God, I am always led in triumphal procession. You can't say always unless you've experienced the bad side of life, right? Like that's the only way you know it's always victory because Paul has walked through what felt like defeat. This idea of triumphal procession, what Paul is alluding to is, is this Roman custom back in the day when the Roman Empire was most of the known world and they were taking lands and conquering and at the end of their great conquests, the Roman army would enter in a triumphal procession through the streets of Rome and the conquerors were at the front and the captives were at the back and the people of Rome would cheer and Paul's a Roman citizen. He's writing to people who are part of the Roman Empire. And he says, that's what we are. We are in that triumphal procession in Christ. Meaning, you're not Corinthians. You're not believers. You're not First Orlando. 
standing at the back of the parade with those living in defeat and chains, but you're at the front of the parade with Christ who is the conquering hero. Triumphal procession. Now in America, our version of the triumphal procession is called a Super Bowl parade. This picture might look familiar. This is from the Bucks Super Bowl parade. That is the goat himself, Tom Brady, either right before or after he chucked this Lombardi trophy across a yacht. And this was uh, last year when the Bucks won the Super Bowl. I tried to find a picture of a Dolphins Super Bowl parade, but the last time that happened, the internet was not invented, and it was just hard to find pictures. So we went with, we went with this. I want to ask this question, how is Paul able to cling so tightly to the victory when everything in his life feels like defeat? And again, it's not because he has something you don't have. He was a man like we are. But I believe as I've studied the life of Paul and I've looked through several of his 13 letters or all, what Paul does is he gives us some nuggets, some Easter eggs, if you will. He drops some hints at what the abundant life is all about. And I want to look at those secrets together with you. They come in various different letters. We're going to put them all in together into one. One of those secrets is the secret of the encountered life. Paul, you might remember, was once a man named Saul. He was a Jewish man and a religious leader and a persecutor of Christians because he thought that the Christians were enemies of God. At one point, this Saul would say that about himself, not only was he a Jewish man or a Hebrew, but he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? In our terms, we might say this guy was a patriot of the Israel nation. And not only was he an Israelite and a Hebrew, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a favored tribe. In fact, the name Benjamin means favorite son. I have a brother named Benjamin. He never lets me forget the meaning of the name. Not only is he an Israelite, not only is he of the tribe of Benjamin, but Paul is a religious leader, a Pharisee, and he is the best of the best. He's accelerating faster than anybody his age, and everybody looks at Paul as, man, if anybody knows who God is, it's this guy. And yet, on one occasion, Paul is on a road to Damascus, and a voice comes from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And given Saul's religious credentials, he asks the most incredible question. He says, who are you, Lord? You're like, what? (laughs) Saul, you are a religious leader. You're a Pharisee. You know that there's one God. If you hear a voice from heaven, Saul, you know who that is. But Saul didn't know who it was. And the reason is that no amount of of effort or moral certainty or religious education can prepare you to live abundantly. It requires an encounter with Jesus. It it requires a change of direction. It requires the initiative of God and our response that changes and transforms us. In fact, for Saul, this transformation was so complete, not only did his name change to Paul, But he would spend the rest of his life on mission for the gospel, testifying to the name of Jesus, the one who met him on the road to Damascus. We use the expression Damascus Road conversion, right? You know, like when a guy's been in prison for, you know, 25 years for, for killing people and dealing drugs, and then he has this radical encounter with Jesus, and he, he's, he becomes a preacher. He's preaching the gospel. He's leading people to Jesus, and you go, man, 
That guy had a Damascus Road conversion. That goes back to the story of Saul, the man who became Paul. And until the day Paul died, he never got over that encounter with Jesus. He never got over the grace of God that would save him, that would set him free, that would forgive him, that would transform him. I want to encourage you to never get far from the place that Jesus met you. Never become so seasoned as a Christian that your routine of showing up at church, although you should, or reading your Bible, although it is imperative, that, that prayer, although it is our lifeline, that any of that would somehow replace what Jesus did for you when he encountered you and when he saved you. Another secret that Paul learned was the secret of the emptied life. He says in a letter to the Galatian church, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As Americans, we are obsessed with winning, right? We love to win. It's why sometimes on a hot Saturday in September, my wife and I will drive to the swamp in Gainesville and cheer for the Gators to win. And it's why we so often drive back home sad because the Gators didn't win. I'm a Hurricanes fan, so I can just put that right out there. We love to win. It's in our movies, it's in our shows, it's in our politics, it's in our music. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Or maybe... We are the champions, my friend. We want to win. We don't, we don't want to lose. We don't want to be emptied. And yet Paul says it is through being emptied that we experience abundant life. It's be, through being poured out that the life of God is poured into us. The paradox of the Christian faith is that the way to win is by losing. The way to being filled is by being emptied. Jesus understood something of this from his disciples because they were all about winning. They would argue with each other and, and say things like, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In, in other words, who gets to win at this thing? And Jesus one time in Matthew 10, 39 said this, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What I believe Jesus is referring to here is, is the release of my will and desires to be replaced by the will and desire of God for me. Another word for that is the word relinquishment. To, to release, to give up, to let go, to relinquish my life, the things I want for me, to receive what God wants for me. You go, man, how, how do you do that, right? Because don't you want to win? Don't you want to have? But if by being emptied, we are filled, then what are the ways that we become emptied? I want to give you two. One is through what's called the prayer of relinquishment or the prayer of release. This comes in part through Richard Foster, a, a writer and a theologian that, that wrote a book that I'm in the middle of. It's a book called Prayer. And he talks about the prayer of relinquishment. In the prayer of relinquishment, I'm, I'm simply posturing myself to let go to receive from God. And so you might do something like take Philippians chapter 2, where it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You take a passage like that in Philippians 2, you say, say, Lord, teach me to live this kind of life. Teach me to be emptied for the good of others. Teach me to be emptied so the life of Christ can be poured into me. Or maybe you just take Jesus' garden prayer, very simple. You can pray it with a single breath and you pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. In that relationship challenge, in that, that work situation, in that huge decision that you've got to make, and you say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The prayer and the practice of relinquishment. The practice of relinquishment is, I've just got a couple things here, but if you're married, you can practice relinquishment by simply holding your tongue when you've got the perfect word to say, right? Being willing to lose an argument. My father-in-law once told me, he said, son, sometimes winning is losing. <laughs> That's a good lesson if you're in a relationship. The practice of relinquishment. Or, or, or maybe you serve your spouse and you don't keep score. You know what I mean? You're not like, well, I did A, B, and C, and she only did X and Y. She didn't do Z. So, but we're not using serving to manipulate or control or to win. We say, God, teach me to serve my spouse, my, my roommate, my parent, my child, whoever it might be. Let me relinquish the need to get something in return. Paul would go so far as to say this. He said, I no longer live. Now, Paul was very much alive. He was breathing. He was living. He was eating and sleeping and doing life. But what Paul meant is in the sense that the life that I had before Christ, I've put to end. I've given it a funeral, I've mourned it, and I've moved on. And now my life is all about Jesus. That is what I believe is the, another secret that, that Paul learned, the secret of the connected life. The great irony of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, you might know the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What you may not know is that the way this verse is often used is the exact opposite of the way it was intended. We like to say, I can do all things, period. But that's not what Paul was saying. Because remember, Paul had learned to be emptied. So the only way he's going to do all things is through the one who fills him, the one who is Christ in him. He says, in Christ, that I can do all things because it's he who strengthens me. Paul had emptied himself so that the only way he'd know victory or peace or contentment in life was by remaining deeply connected to Jesus. In fact, in the verse prior to Philippians 4.13, Philippians 4.12, Paul calls this the secret of contentment. What is the secret of contentment? It's learning that only through Christ can I do anything. Jesus, shortly before he was turned over to be crucified, had one last conversation with the disciples and he introduced them to a concept that the Holy Spirit was going to come to them and live in them. And this was a new idea built on something that they already understood. See, the disciples understood that there was a Spirit of God, that, that it was the Spirit of God who hovered over the waters at creation, Genesis chapter 2. That it was the Spirit of God who came on men like David or Elijah that empowered them to do great works. But what the disciples didn't understand is that by faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit would come to be a permanent resident within them. 
Not, not visiting for the weekend, but, but permanently living inside of them. And as Jesus taught these disciples what the Holy Spirit came to do, he uses an, a metaphor, an illustration that captures the idea perfectly. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this, Abide or remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not a little bit. Paul's been emptied. And Paul is now connected to the source of all that is good and true and right and holy, Jesus. So then the work of Christian living is not to try harder or do better. It is simply to remain in conscious connection with Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. That's the work. If you're anything like me, it takes me a while to get there. Because first I... I get upset, and then I complain, and then I try harder, and then I seek help, and then finally I go, oh, wait a second, Spirit of the living God who is in me, help me to rest in your peace. Help me to walk in your victory. The connected life. And finally, at least for the purposes of this morning, because I believe there are others, Paul learned the secret of the purposed life. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Acts tells the story of the church that was first being established. A man named Luke traveled with Paul and wrote down these lessons. And he records Paul saying this, Acts 20, verse 24. I'm going to say it the way I memorized it. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. When I was in my mid-twenties, this was my life verse, and I met a woman who, it was her life verse as well, and so I married her, and we decided pretty early on that we were going to build our life on the gospel. Not perfectly, but there was no illusions that I was getting rich. She knew that wasn't going to happen. Like, it wasn't going to be about money. It wasn't going to be about our size of our home or our vehicles or, or our recognition or fame or power or whatever it was, but that we would come together to be a force for the gospel. And that through us, we could say like the Apostle Paul, nothing else matters but to testify to the gospel of God's grace. As a church, we have this mission statement to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. We talk about this at all of our campuses. Several years ago, I wrestled in my own life with, God, what is my personal mission? Now, some of you, and I want to speak to those of you that might be uh, C-level leaders of corporations, or maybe you're the, the owner or the founder of your own business. Well, you know the importance of a mission statement. You know the importance of everybody understanding why they're there and what they're there to do. And yet some of us haven't even taken 15 minutes to think about our own personal reason for existence. And we're so busy doing the things and, and we don't ever stop. And on this one occasion, I stopped and I wrestled and I had a uh, pen and a piece of paper. I said, God, what is my purpose in life? And this is what came out. My purpose is to cooperate with the Spirit of God in leading myself and others closer to the heart of Jesus. So that's the filter. It's like this opportunity, this platform, this does it help me to get closer to the heart of Jesus and lead others to that as well? Because if it doesn't, then it isn't my reason 
for living. In another letter to the Philippians, Paul would say it this way. I haven't already obtained all this or already been made perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain toward what is ahead. Friends, can I ask you this question? What is your one thing? Like, when you boil it all down, what is the one thing that you're living for? And some of you might say, well, I want to be a good husband or wife. I want to be a great mother or father. I want to be a good friend. I want to work hard. But here's the problem. And, and it was Jimmy Knott, pastor, pastored here uh, as one of the pastors for 41 years. He challenged me when I was a young man. He said, Chris, if you're living to be a good husband or good dad, you're not living for the right thing. I was like, what do you mean? He said, let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you get a call from the Florida Highway Patrol and they're on I-4 and they say, Chris, we regret to inform you. Your wife and three children have been in a horrific car accident and none of them have survived. What then is there to live for? Because if my one thing is a person, if my one thing is a job, if my one thing is a bank account, then that can be taken from me. And Paul says, but this can never be taken. That I would strive for the upward call of heaven. That's what I live for, to know Christ. Amen. <laughs> to know Christ and to make him known. This was Paul's one thing. And it's the reason that Paul could endure shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonment and abandonment. And ultimately, he was beheaded in Rome for this one thing. It was the reason he devoted his life to, to living on so little so that he could travel the world to plant churches in places like we've already looked at, Philippi, Ephesus, Galatia, or even right there in Corinth. And this one thing is the reason that in 2018, a group of people was commissioned from First Orlando to start a new work in Horizon West. And we believe that what God began, he's going to carry to completion. We envision a day where not just a few missionaries will be sent out, but, but new works are begun. We envision a day when the local community and around the world is impacted by the good news of the gospel that is being proclaimed at Horizon West, where people are finding hope and healing and freedom, where our grandkids' grandkids can learn to walk in the victory they have in Jesus. And I encourage you, be praying for us in that. Be ready to support us when that call comes. I want to close in this way. Many of you have been through things in the last two years that you didn't think you'd have to go through in a lifetime. And the losses that you've experienced, the anxieties you've wrestled with, the pain that you've endured, you're asking the question, God, where are you in this? God, how can I have victory if my life is so unstable? And I would take you back to those simple words of the Apostle Paul. Thanks be to God, because it is he who always gives us the victory in Christ. It may be for some of you that you've never had the encounter with Jesus. Like, Man, Chris, I'm trying. I, I, I show up. I'm even, I became a member. I, I even, but have you encountered Jesus? Because that's what it is. It's the gospel. It's the encounter with Jesus that saves you. Or maybe it's learning to be emptied. Maybe it's learning to be connected with the Spirit of God in you. Maybe it's learning just to live on purpose for the gospel. I want to invite you to do that work with God in your own heart. And perhaps to take the next step to tell someone. To have somebody pray for you. 
or to take your next step here at the church. Would you pray with me? Father, I think about the person that I was at 15 years old when I first read the words where you said, God, that you had come that we could have life and have it to the fullest. And God, I've spent the last 25 years chasing the abundant life and experiencing it at the same time, having and yet striving for more. God, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that they would know the abundant life that is theirs through Christ, through the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that, that brings us life not only in heaven one day, but here and now. And God, for those of us who are just stuck, we're just in a bit of a rut, we've just replaced the one thing with many others, God, would you remind us, it is all about you. It is all about Jesus. And would you help us to live with that one thing in front of us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.